Hey guys, welcome to In the Trenches, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to entrepreneurs and CEOs running small to medium-sized businesses. In today's episode, I've again made a blog post available to you in audio form, which is what you're listening to right now. I've crudely called these episodes audio blogs, and I'm presenting them to you in case you prefer this format over the written one. If you'd like to access the written form of these blogs, you can do so at inthetrenches.net forward slash blog. Once you're there, feel free to subscribe so that you can receive blog posts in both written and audio form as they're published. In any case, regardless of how you decide to consume the blog material, I sincerely hope that something contained within is genuinely helpful to you along your own leadership journey. In a previous audio blog entitled Busting the Biggest Myth About Selling Your Business, we reviewed a number of fundamental facts related to the sale of any company that warrant being repeated here. First, the single biggest myth about selling a company is that the seller bears no further risk after the sale of her company is completed. Second, the M&A negotiation process between buyer and seller is effectively a process whereby two parties mutually decide which risks will be borne by whom and whether any given party will bear an asymmetric burden of any given risk. And third, buyers have many mechanisms available to them to shift legal and financial risk back onto the seller before, during, and after the closing of the transaction. Now, these mechanisms are very common, and you should expect at least some of them to be part of your own transaction should you decide to sell your own company. One mechanism in particular, however, seems to be the most fraught with confusion and often presents one of the larger sources of financial risk to the selling entrepreneur. That mechanism is called the working capital adjustment. The rest of this audio blog will be dedicated to discussing why the working capital adjustment is necessary, how it typically works, and common mistakes made by both buyers and sellers that can have material financial impacts. So the working capital adjustment is based on the idea that any valuation ascribed to any business is contingent upon the business having a, quote, normal balance of working capital, which is defined as current assets minus current liabilities, on the day of closing. At closing, if the business is delivered to the buyer with more than normal working capital, then that positive variance gets added to the purchase price and gets paid to the seller. If the business is delivered to the buyer with less than normal working capital at closing, then that variance gets subtracted from the purchase price and gets paid to the buyer. Typically, this working capital calculation or adjustment is done anywhere between 30 to 120 days after closing, which gives both parties enough time to make their own calculations concerning whether or not the business was delivered to the buyer with a normal level of working capital. Now, working capital mechanisms are necessary in substantially all transactions for reasons that include, first, protecting buyers. Without a working capital adjustment, sellers would have an opportunity to artificially enrich themselves beyond the agreed upon purchase price immediately prior to the transaction's closing date. For example, before closing, sellers could choose to collect all of their receivables, delay all of their payables, or refuse to buy any new inventory. Any cash collected from receivables, as well as cash not expended in satisfying payables or purchasing inventory, would go straight into the seller's pocket in this example. If this happened, on closing day, the new owner would be left with a business that owes much more money than is typical, is owed much less than is typical, or doesn't have the inventory required to satisfy ordinary course purchase orders. 
because the buyer's valuation assumed that the working capital levels were going to be, quote, normal relative to historical norms, these would represent cash outflows that the buyer would have to bear that were not originally contemplated by them. Now, the working capital adjustment also exists to protect sellers. The sale of a company naturally happens at a singular point in time, and sometimes the events that take place immediately before or immediately after a sale are not representative of the steady state operations of that business. For example, consider a company that generates $5 million in revenue and has a large $2 million outstanding receivable in place from its largest customer. Further consider that this receivable has been outstanding for six months. This is obviously a very material amount of money for this company. This receivable is based on a sale that the company made six months ago, so naturally the seller expects the proceeds to go into her pockets, not those of the acquirer. Without a working capital adjustment, however, if that customer decided to finally pay their bill even one day after the company was sold, then that cash would go into the pockets of the acquirer, not the seller, because all cash flows that occur after closing belong to the acquirer despite when the underlying sale was made. The working capital mechanism exists to adjust for just such anomalies. Now, in order to prevent things like these from happening, buyers and sellers will negotiate a working capital peg or a target that they mutually agree represents a normal level of working capital in the business. Approximately 30 to 120 days after closing, the actual amount of working capital on the closing date is compared to the peg. If the actual working capital balance exceeds that of the target or the peg, then the seller gets that variance paid to them, which in effect increases the purchase price. If the actual working capital balance is less than that of the target, then the buyer gets that variance paid to them, which in effect decreases the purchase price, often through the funds held in escrow. Now, though this may sound simple enough, it is through this mechanism that many inexperienced sellers leave money on the table relative to their more experienced and savvy counterparts. As you heard in the audio blog, Busting the Biggest Myth About Selling Your Business, receiving a $20 million valuation for your company does not necessarily mean that you will collect $20 million in cash for it. There are many ways in which buyers may attempt to utilize the working capital mechanism to effectively reduce their purchase price. When you sell your own company, keep your eyes out for some of the following. First, keep your eyes open for the definition of working capital itself. Unfortunately, it is almost never as simple as current assets minus current liabilities, despite this being the term's academic definition. Expect this definition to be heavily negotiated. Remember that all other things being equal, the buyer would theoretically prefer to set the working capital peg high to increase the likelihood that the company is delivered to them with an amount of working capital that is less than the peg, which would prompt a payment to them, or effectively reduce their purchase price. Now, note, of course, that buyers will always need to make sure that the business is delivered to them at closing with enough working capital to allow them to smoothly operate the business in the early days and weeks post-close. Keep this in mind when potential acquirers try to include or exclude certain things from the definition of your working capital balance. Next, keep your eyes open for the choice of the peg or the target. Any true up payment after closing to either buyer or seller depends entirely upon the level of working capital at closing relative to the agreed upon peg. You should also expect the peg itself to be heavily negotiated. Is normal working capital equal to the average level of working capital over the past six months, 12 months, 24 months? If your business is highly seasonal, and let's say you're selling it in November, is a normal working capital balance equal to the average balance over each of the past two Novembers, four Novembers? 
what happens if over the past two to four years, the business has grown substantially over that same period, such that the working capital balance in each successive year is materially different from the balance in the prior year? All else being equal, expect your buyer to argue for a definition of normal that best suits their own interest. Once it's time to negotiate the actual adjustment to the purchase price 30 to 120 days after closing, you should also recognize that in some instances, the acquirer may find themselves in a bit of an awkward position. On one hand, they may wish to use the working capital adjustment to recoup as much of their purchase price as possible, specifically if money is legitimately owed to them. Because of course, if money isn't legitimately owed to them, that would represent bad faith negotiation. And over time, this would ruin the reputation of said acquirer. On the other hand, the reality of many SMB sales is that the buyer tends to be heavily dependent on the seller, specifically during the first one to six months after closing. And this is particularly true if the buyer is an individual entrepreneur or another small business. This reliance is related to things like customer relationships, industry knowledge, and navigating internal policies and procedures. It is for this reason that buyers often have to be pretty thoughtful about just how aggressive they want to be in these post-closing working capital negotiations. Reducing their purchase price might be a good outcome, but not if it comes at the expense of ruining a relationship with a person on whom they will be heavily dependent for the next one to six months. Let's talk about the importance of proper accruals and closing adjustments in defining what that working capital balance actually is. Now, often in spite of their best efforts, many SMBs don't have audited financial statements, don't make gap compliant monthly accruals and closing adjustments, and generally lack a robust finance and accounting operation. Though this is indeed common and in and of itself should not be a cause for concern, it can present several unique challenges for both buyers and sellers specific to determining the actual balance of working capital, including when establishing the PEG. It's therefore in the best interest of both buyer and seller, to the best extent possible, to ensure that the working capital balance is stated in a fully gap compliant manner before the working capital negotiations begin. Though there can be a wide range of areas in which working capital balances are calculated in a non-GAAP compliant manner, some of the examples that I'm about to review are most common in my experience, so keep an eye out for them. First, properly accruing for things like vacations, bonuses, and sales commissions on a monthly basis. A lot of SMBs don't really do this terribly well, and if sellers don't do this properly, buyers may inherit more financial obligations than the balance sheet would suggest on its surface. Second, properly accruing for deferred revenue balances. Of course, the larger the balance, the more material of an issue this will be. This tends to be very common within software companies and in other companies that have a negative working capital cycle. That is, they get paid by their customers before they fulfill their obligations to them. Third, making allowance for doubtful accounts, otherwise known as contemplated non-payments, when businesses compute their balances of accounts receivable. Next, having prepaid expenses that have sat on the balance sheet for too long and for various reasons are highly unlikely to be used. These artificially inflated balances suggest that a buyer is inheriting more of a financial benefit than they will actually be inheriting in practice. And finally, taxes payable. In many jurisdictions, tax authorities impose a financial penalty for waiting until year end to pay the company's taxes owing. The government prefers to receive monthly income tax installments based on the company's projected tax liability for the year and does a final reconciliation at the end of the year. For any companies who don't make these monthly income tax installment payments, they usually don't properly accrue for the financial penalty that they will have to pay in the following tax year, which usually represents a financial obligation that will have to be borne by the buyer, and in most cases, this financial obligation was not originally contemplated by them. 
So in sum, the working capital adjustment is often the risk sharing mechanism that presents sellers with the largest source of financial risk, even after their business has already been sold. The more educated you are on this mechanism before you try to sell your business, the better prepared you'll be once this issue is inevitably discussed during the course of your negotiation process. Thank you.